Welcome to episode 115 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's September 5th, 2023. And in today's episode, we're going to discuss the relationship between music and disease in history, and also how music is used in popular historical works more generally. Our guest today is Karen Cook, who's an associate professor of music history and the assistant dean for special projects at the University of Hartford, which for you, Lee, is in Connecticut. Karen specializes in medieval and Renaissance music theory and performance. Her work examines medieval music theory and rhythmic notation in the 14th and 15th centuries. Karen has also written a number of articles about popular and contemporary music, especially on music and identity in television, film, and video games, and on near-medievalism in contemporary culture. Her articles have appeared in Plain Song and Medieval Music, early music, and in music and video games, studying play, among other venues. Finally, Karen is also an active singer and performer of both early and contemporary music, which I think makes her the first of our guests who sings and performs. I might be wrong, but in any case, welcome to the podcast, Karen. Thank you. Now, first, I want to say thanks to Rachel Blake, our former colleague at Succinct, for making us aware of the place of music in COVID and making us aware of Karen's work more generally. This podcast cannot be possible without colleagues and listeners identifying new guests on the show, so we really appreciate that Rachel made us aware of this work. Now, despite Karen being a medievalist, neither of us has ever worked on medieval music, so I'm quite excited to delve into that broad category. But we also have a mini sub-focus, I guess we could say, on historical ideas in contemporary popular culture, which we've also spent a good deal of time talking about during this podcast and will today as well. Now, Lee, sometimes this is often called, quote unquote, reception studies, how are medieval ideas received in the present, hence the name, but it's clearly much more than this, since I think it's quite a lot broader. Right, Merle, I'm not sure what the difference is between a mini sub-focus and just a sub-focus, but following up on the thanks, I think this should also be a call for any suggestions by our listeners for future episodes, as I hope we are clear we are not experts on everything and finding both new topics and research areas has been a big part of this podcast for both of us. So please do send us emails. As to this episode, I agree. Medieval music does fall outside of what many of us commonly discuss in our research and also teaching, although I have been trying to incorporate more music into my ancient and Byzantine history classes, which is perhaps less familiar to my students than the medieval music we're going to be discussing today. But of course, we'll want to look at connections between this medieval and early modern music and also the epidemics and pandemics that are occurring at the same time that we've been discussing on this podcast and some of the hundred and something episodes that we had so far. So I too am excited to look at things from this perspective. But putting all this aside for a couple of minutes, Merle, where are you now and what's happening near you? Classes have started and you're all ready to go? Yeah, so we're on the third week of the semester already here. So I guess we're already in the meat of the material, I guess you could say. It's going well and I'm enjoying the courses, especially because I'm not grading yet. And as all academics listening to this podcast know, the part before you actually start grading is, I think, the most wonderful part because you're doing your lectures and you're talking and that kind of stuff without having to do the heavy load of the grading. And this week has been particularly fun because I think you do this as well, Lee, which we both stole from one of our teachers, Jack Tanous, which is I make my students come to my office hours twice during the course of the semester for 5% of their grade. So this is the last week they have to do the first visit. And so, you know, I just have basically a line out my door for an hour and a half straight. So that's tiring after a while. 
So you actually asked them to come twice a semester. Yeah, I found that twice was better than once because the first time you just get to know them. It's I basically learn their names and what their majors are and kind of why they're in my class or classes. And then the second time is when I use the time to actually discuss, let's say, the paper they're writing or as they're doing a one class, they have to do a podcast. So the podcast they're going to be working on. And so I get five or 10 minutes to actually work with them on their material. That's why I do twice. And these are individual meetings. So one on one. Yeah, individual meetings. I haven't done it with a class above like 35 because then it gets a little unwieldy, but I find that it's quite useful. I mean, you do this too, don't you? Yeah, I do. But for me, it's mostly several students come in at the same time. And then it's probably what, like two, three or four students who can stay in for 20 or 30 minutes or so and just like have a longer discussion. Yeah, I mean, I actually spend a lot of time ending up talking to my students about like, their careers and what they want to do, because I found that no one actually talks to them about these things. And so that's kind of interesting as well, but a longer conversation. In any case, Lee, where are you? You're not using your pink microphone. So are you at Princeton now? So you've upgraded from pink, which I guess is Hebrew University's colors to, well, black and orange are Princeton colors. It's a black microphone, but yes, I am at Princeton. We just began the academic year here today. So it was pretty exciting. My daughter went to her first day in preschool here, which is also very exciting. There are a few interesting things here, Merle, which we might want to discuss at some point, such as the entire picking up or dropping off kids outside school. The idea that as a parent, I cannot go into the classroom where my daughter is at was a bit strange for me, but we could put that aside for now. Well, I'll just say I've done every version of drop off at this point, walking, going in, car lines. I mean, you know, my kids have been in now a million daycares, preschools and schools based on all our moves. But why at least I was always told that you drop them off the door is because then they become less attached and they just kind of start school, which is kind of nice, right? Bye. See you later. Gone. Yeah, maybe. I mean, so far it seems to work. Surprisingly so, I have to say. I'll keep you and listeners updated as we move on. And what about you, Karen? Where are you now? Are are you in Connecticut? And how are you doing? I am. I'm fine. I'm in Connecticut right now. I'm working from home largely this semester in a continuation of the last several years. And have you found that transition to working mostly from home fine? I mean, do you still go in for faculty meetings or dean thingamabobbies, whatever deans do these days? This will be the first semester that I've really gone back in person for some meetings. We are still doing faculty meetings online, for example, but I will have some in-person responsibilities this semester. That is the first time I've really had to do that since March of 2020. So it's an interesting transition. It's become quite normal for me to work from home. But then when I see all of my colleagues going back into the classroom for the fourth or fifth semester in a row, it reminds me of how long it's been since I've done that. Would you say that a hypothetical student who comes on campus today would have the same experience that another hypothetical student who would come to campus, let's say in 2019 before COVID, would that experience be similar? I mean, from the student's perspective? The students will be almost 100% back in person. So I don't imagine that they will be shifting to much online learning the way that a student would have had to have done in 2020, 2021, maybe a tiny part of 2022. But some of us still remain parked at home in a way. 
we'll see what the spring semester holds for me. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, one thing that's been fascinating as Lee knows over the course of this podcast existence is the different ways in which different universities in different places around the world have and still are reacting to COVID or as in the case of some universities saying it doesn't exist anymore, but that's a different conversation entirely. So maybe we can start the podcast as we always do with big questions. And I'll ask perhaps the most unfair question possible, but one that probably some of our listeners will be curious about, which is what is medieval music? I mean, as a category? It's a huge question and it's one that's really hard to answer. So I guess I'll start off by saying that when I'm talking about medieval, I'm talking about Western Europe. So there's lots of conversations in many fields about whether you can talk about a global medieval, right? Obviously, all places existed at the time, but they might think of their pasts in different language. So I just want to be kind of clear that I'm talking about Western Europe. And same in other disciplines. Nobody quite knows when the medieval era started or when it ended. So we could be talking about 1,200 years of music in an entire continent. So it's really hard to categorize that. <laughs> Let's just say that there's a lot of stuff and I'm happy to break it down further. So if you could maybe start by breaking it down into sure. different genres of the broad medieval music and maybe sure. time periods as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, we don't really know exactly when the medieval era started or ended. So I can describe a little bit about what I might relate to my average undergrad in the early music survey, for example, which gets into a good part of it. So the, obviously there's music that's for the church. There's obviously music that's for the court. There's obviously music that came from maybe a more academic, intellectual, erudite place, whether that was church or court. Then there's obviously music that was a little bit more for fun. But I think it's really important to note that all of what we have, we have because somebody documented it, which required a certain level of expertise and knowledge. So on some level, we have to think about all the medieval music that we lost. And it's what I ask my undergrads to do. Like, when's the last time you ever kept a diary about every song you sang in the shower? Right? You don't do it. We have no idea. We have no trace of that information. What lullabies did your mom sing to you? We don't know. Right? We don't know what a lot of these folks were doing in their average everyday lives. So when we talk about medieval music, we're talking about just the stuff that got passed down, the stuff that got documented. So like I said, we kind of categorize that by its function, what it was for. So there's the church, there's other kinds of religions that we can talk about, although that music wasn't as preserved. There's music for the court, there's music for the pub, you know, there's music for love, right? That might be one way of breaking it down. And what are the timeframes that we're talking about here? I mean, do we have like a broad start point and end point? When do we have music from, right? I mean, I, I know from my side of antiquity, right, that we do have some references to music and even like notated music from the Hellenistic period, I think. That's like either Hellenistic or Roman period. Sure. But that's like unique. I think it's an epithet. But when does medieval music like become an actual field that people go and study and do research sure. on? Sure, sure. I mean, you're right. Yes, there is very limited notated music left to us from ancient Greece. Similarly, there is notated music or music that we could decipher from ancient Egypt and from other 
countries and cultures around the world. I'm not expert enough to speak to those. When we talk about medieval music, a lot of times we start with when things start to get written down. We know stuff was around before then, but we can only talk about what was recorded, right? So we can think about things starting around the ninth century, ninth, tenth century, when we start to first get little squiggles in manuscripts that tell us that this is music happening. And scholars more educated than I in that field can decode what those squiggles mean and put a melody to that. So a lot of times we'll think in music that this is a moment when we can start talking about something, right? And we usually tend to put, again, the European medieval period ending somewhere around 1400, give or take. Your mileage may vary on whether you're a little bit earlier or a little bit later, 1450 maybe. So again, we're talking about a good long chunk of time. And I guess to ask on the end side of that, right, as someone who teaches a medieval survey, just like you described, although it goes a little earlier, you know, 500 to let's call it 1500, does it end? Does it look different in the quote unquote Renaissance, whatever the Renaissance is these days? I'm not even sure if that's a term we're supposed to use, but that's a different discussion altogether. I mean, does music look different after the 1400 mark? And if so, how and why? Sure, it does. I mean, we can also look at, you know, does music look different in 1200 versus 900? Yes. Strikingly. Does it look different in 1300? Oh, yeah. And then again, does it look different in 1400? Absolutely. So the general trajectory of what we have left to us is that, and this is like huge, broad, sweeping blanket statements, right? The further you go into time, the more voices you have, right? Not always, right? You can have music for one voice in 900 and music for one voice in 1700. Totally cool. But you're not going to find six and eight and 12 voice pieces in the year 1000. It didn't really happen that way. So you get more and more voices. Harmony changes, right? People's ideas of what sounded good harmonically change from those like open fourths and fifths that are so stereotypically medieval in pop culture to kind of more consonant sounding thirds and sixths. We might have some harmonic inclinations today. Rhythm and meter change. I mean, again, really broadly, a lot of people liked things in three for a while, then they started liking things that were in two. These are huge, 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 broad sweeping statements. But, you know, certainly if I dropped the needle, which is a phrase I can't use anymore, on a piece in 1400 or 1500, it would definitely sound different than a piece in 1000 to even uneducated, I've never heard this stuff before, listener. And what kind of instruments and vocals are in use in like these different genres of music, the ones that survived, of course? It's hard to say, because obviously we don't have any recordings. We don't know what people's voices sounded like. And they didn't always leave to us documentation as to who was doing the singing. Or maybe it didn't matter who was doing the singing, right? You know, just put it in your range and sing it. Go. Just like we could do today. All right. If I asked you all to sing happy birthday at a birthday party, it's going to be in whatever key fits the group, right? So the same thing with medieval music, I'm sure. It's really important to note that there were a lot of female singers. So a lot of people, I think, have maybe this sort of stereotype or preconceived notion that only men were involved in music or only men did the singing. And it's really not true. So we know women were involved a lot. So we do have female vocals, right? If we want to talk about that. Instrument-wise, There's certainly a lot of instruments that are like the predecessors of modern instruments. So you have the medieval, you know, lute, right? A lot of people know lutes, for an example, medieval and Renaissance lute. 
but there were medieval guitars as well, certainly medieval flutes and recorders, not the kind that your children bring home from kindergarten, but actual legit recorders. You know, certainly there were early precursors to fiddles and violins, all of that stuff that we might expect, early oboes, early bassoons. But there were also a lot of instruments that didn't really develop because they weren't adopted by the symphony orchestra. Like a recorder really wasn't ever part of the orchestra because you could never hear it over the bass drum in the back. So you have crumb horns and gims horns and all sorts of interesting instruments that people don't really know about unless you start listening to modern recordings of early music. And just out of interest, was any of this standardized? I mean, both instrument production, but also, I mean, the ways instruments look. I mean, would like a person who knew how to play a particular flute very well could pick up a similar flute elsewhere and play it well? That's a great question and one that I don't really know the answer to. I would think that on some level, as long as an instrument was decently made and the mechanics were all there, you could probably figure it out just like you could today. But I don't know that there was anything like a standardization of instruments. And in fact, if memory serves, there's definitely some interesting info floating around out there about how you know tuning might be slightly different in one city versus a different city. And one country did it this way and another country did it that way. So if you were you know, a flute player in Germany, and I'm picking that name out of a hat, and you walk down to Italy, you might find that your flute didn't match all the other flutes and it couldn't play nicely with the others. But that's not to say that was always the case or that that's even 100% accurate. But I think standardization becomes more important when you get bigger groups that have to play together because then everybody has to sound good together. And that doesn't happen for a while, I think. So basically, kind of like we do today, if you're friends and you want to jam, you grab whatever you have and you figure out how to make it work. And if I can ask one last kind of introductory question, are there any, you know, Obviously, there are some, but some famous figures that people should be aware of oh, you gosh. Know, if we're talking Western medieval music. Maybe pick a time period that you want, probably narrow it down sure. a bit. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. There's hundreds and thousands. Where do you even start? Many people answering that question would jump immediately to composers. But I think it's important to say, well, of course, there were performers and instrument makers and theorists and scribes that were all part of the game, all part of the process. And they're all super important. So, you know, some interesting people that are not necessarily more important than any others, but some interesting folks that people might be interested in hearing a little bit about. You could go all the way back to the 11th, 12th century and talk about Hildegard von Bingen, who's a name that a lot of people know because she was a very famous nun. She was a mystic. She wrote so many things that were passed down to us today. She was a scientist, a doctor, and a composer. And she wrote music. She wrote chant, single monophonic, one voice at a time music for worship for her nuns. And they sang. And a lot of her music has been preserved because she took it upon herself to sort of document her life's work as she got to a certain age. So her stuff is fascinating. And her life is really, really fascinating to modern eyes and ears, I think. But there are lots of interesting people. We could talk about somebody like Guillaume de Machaut, who was probably the best-known poet of the 14th century, but also probably one of the best-known composers, too. And he also documented all of his life's work as he got to a certain age. So there are parallels in that respect. But because they did that, we know a lot about them, which means that they're centered a lot in our stories. 
So those are names that people might come across quite a lot if they're getting into this sort of thing. So maybe as we transition, you mentioned chanting, and we also, I think at some point earlier on, mentioned plain chanting. So are both of these the same? What exactly are they? Could you try to define them for people who are not experts in this topic? Sure. Sure. I mean, plain chant is a genre of music that is monophonic, meaning a single line at a time. So everybody's singing in unison, however many people are singing, everybody's singing in unison in Latin. And it's part of the Christian liturgy. And at that point, the Christian liturgy, now we would call it the Catholic liturgy, right? Prior to the Reformation, right? So this is a body of musical texts, musical compositions that developed over years in the early musical years of plain chant that then got sort of fixed and is now like a codified body of chant. And that doesn't mean that there's not others out there, right? Other traditions. But that's what we mean when we're talking about plain chant is this body of liturgical music for the Catholic Church that's been performed from the time it started till now. Unbroken tradition. So if we can turn to, I guess, discussing kind of disease stuff for a bit now. Is there a category of medieval or early modern disease or pandemic music, right? Did something happen, as is often suggested, with the Black Death that, you know, music suddenly changed? Or is that not a thing that's developed necessarily in medieval music? Music suddenly changed. I think what we have are works that we know had something to do with the plague. Like this was written in response to the plague. It might not sound different than anything else going on at the time, but there's a reference in the text. And that's what we're really talking about is like vocal music a lot of the times because the words tell us, hey, this is about the plague, right? And so we do get new pieces that are cropping up, say, in the 14th century at the time of the Black Death, as people like to call it, right? That we know pertained to the plague. Examples would be like music that's written for St. Sebastian because he was held up as a saint that could have this particular ability to intercede on your behalf in times of plague. So just like we see a lot of prayers or sermons, you see a lot of music that's written for him during these moments where people needed his help. Or other texts that are kind of newly composed, like there's a piece called the Stella Celi, right? And that is basically an ode to Mary saying, you know, you, you, nourished God at your breast and you've rooted up that plague that the earliest parents planted. You, you can jump in here and save us from the plague, Mary. Get cracking. Those kinds of pieces come up that we can say, okay, all right, this is somebody reacting to the plague. Obviously, there's other pieces that we know would have just been performed during, say, church services that might not mention the plague, but we know it was composed in a year where it's like, well, that person had to have been affected. By the plague, or that guy, Guillaume de Michaud, that I mentioned, we know he survived the plague. He lived through it and he survived it and he documented it in his writings that, hey, this is going on. He's very, very clear in his diaries, his personal notes and letters that this is what's going on with the plague. But then if you turn to his music, that's not necessarily reflected there, but we know it existed at the same time. So what do you do with that? So just to clarify or maybe reiterate, so you're saying that the plague is identifiable in these musics, but mostly in their lyrics rather than the way they were composed or made or sounded otherwise. Yes, yes, I think so. Certainly during the 14th century when we're talking about the Black Death, I don't know that you could pinpoint something just by its sound. You'd have to look at the words 
just out of curiosity, is this a mini subfield, to use a term that Lee questioned if it exists at the opening of the podcast, of people studying medieval music, or is it just kind of a thing that everyone knows? I mean, I'm just curious, right, in a medieval medicine or public health or environmental history, studying the Black Death as its own field or economic history. Does this work the same way with music or not at all? Not necessarily. I can think of a few people that have done work specifically on music and the plague, the 14th century plague, and later, you know, returns of the plague, reiterations of the plague. One is my colleague, Remy Chu, who's now at Peabody. He wrote the definitive book on music and plague in the Renaissance. His work is a wonderful resource. And then a colleague of mine, Christopher Macklin, also did some work on music and the plague, although he has gone into non-musical endeavors in his career at this point. So he's not continuing, to my knowledge, to work on that topic. So I wouldn't really count one and a half people as a subfield. But there are likely others. I have no doubt that there are others who ask these questions, maybe not about the 14th century plague per se, but about the relationships between medieval music and disability or disease or health and wellness. You could even go back to somebody like Hildegard. Lots of people have worked on her, the relationships between her music and her ideas about medicine or physicality or gender, things pertaining to the body. So there are certainly people doing that work. So regarding these pieces that discuss plague as in the 14th century plague, could you say something about their reception in subsequent decades or centuries? Were these pieces kind of like pulled off the shelf whenever an epidemic came in or whenever people heard about an epidemic? Or was that not really the case and people just continued to compose more music and write more music for subsequent outbreaks or epidemics? I don't know that we're going to get the same exact piece performed a century or two later, because musical styles have changed way too much. But what we do see are maybe the same texts being set to new music, right? So the same hymn to St. Sebastian is going to be composed, set to music over and over again in the 14th century style, the 15th century style, the 16th century style, the 17th century style, because that's what people did. You take a text and you set it to music in the current fashionable style. I can't think of any single pieces that would have been continued to be performed, but we have them because they were, again, important enough to be documented. They were notated, they were written down. Who's to say somebody didn't go looking through those old dusty manuscripts and sing through some of it? I can't say it never happened, but I don't know that it did. And just out of curiosity, did anyone go back through those dusty manuscripts or printed editions, I guess I should say now, and redo them, rethink these things during COVID as well? Was this something that people did? For sure. I can't say that those particular pieces I was mentioning, I don't know of recordings off the top of my head that recorded them. But certainly there were plenty of recordings that came about that were thinking through music's relationship with the plague, some plague at some point, or music and disease, or music that was just very open about where it was coming from. This was performed and recorded over Zoom. This was performed and recorded virtually from our living rooms. Maybe it wasn't the piece itself, but the manner in which it was recorded. Absolutely. Tons of music came out that had to do with that. So what influence would you say that COVID had, if at all, since the beginning of the pandemic on music that has been released since? 
I mean, I think it really depends on the kind of music and who has the ability or desire even to, at least in the early stages of COVID, who's going to take the risk to go and work in person in a recording studio? Surely it did. Other people said, no way, I'll do whatever I can remotely, virtually. And a lot of people had to pivot and learn a lot of new technologies that are now being seen put into play on recordings that are maybe things that wouldn't have happened if COVID had never occurred, right? So it's coming out in the technology that people are using, the different ways that people have found to network and rehearse with each other virtually rather than being in person. A lot of times the content, right? You know, Selka said several albums have come out that are specifically about music and the plague, music and some sort of illness, music and something. Or there's albums, like I said, where people recorded a lot of solo works in lockdown. I normally play with a group, but it's just me and I got to play something and here's my new album of solo material. So massive amounts of pivoting that I think are reshaping music continuously at this point. I mean, it's probably too early to tell, but are people largely going back to what they did before? Or is there like a long-term influence of these things? I mean, the only thing I can think of is obviously these large mega star tours that all my students seem to be attending at the moment. Sure. Yeah. There's no medieval music burning man, which is probably a good thing, right? But certainly a lot of the folks that I know personally and professionally are going back to performing in person, they're touring, but, or I should say, and now folks know that there are other options. So they might well choose to record and perform in person and do live concerts in person, but then also maybe live stream it or record it and then put a virtual recording on YouTube for people to watch later or combine the in-person performance with a separate live streamed performance that's also live, but virtual only, right? Or finding new ways to rehearse with each other, like I said before. So I think there's a lot of both and rather than but. It's not all or nothing. I think people are seeing the good that came out of the last few years and that allow them to be creative and think about new ways of doing it. Because as you can imagine, medieval music does not draw Taylor Swift size stadium like concerts, more's the pity. So any way that people can think to get more material out there and grab new audiences is a net boon, right? So go for it. So maybe to transition from that to broader audiences and continue that kind of discussion. So we've spent quite a few time on this podcast reflecting on how historical events and people are thought about in today's quote unquote popular culture. And you have worked quite a bit on medievalism. So maybe we can start by discussing that term. What exactly is medievalism? And then we can dive deeper into medievalism in popular culture. Broad blanket statement, generally, medievalism, most people will use that term to refer to anything that's like the reception history of the medieval. So how people after the medieval think about the medieval. And because we don't exactly know when the medieval ended, right? Sometimes people in the later medieval thinking about early medieval, right? So it's basically a looking back at the past and creatively reimagining it. So for some people, that means like fantasy. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and Game of Thrones. And for other people, it means like a modern musical album recording music of the plague. Maybe that's a medievalism, right? Anything, whether it's trying to be accurate or authentic or 
absolutely not might fall under that umbrella depending on who you're talking to and there is a medievalism but there is as to the best of my knowledge no similar term for antiquity right there's no like ancientism or antiquitism or something like that right and in fact i have a book chapter coming out that asks you know do we have a renaissanceism right we don't have that really either we don't have an ancient greeceism because those time periods don't seem to have captured the public imagination in quite the same way. There's something about the medieval, and I think that's because the medieval is so broad, so vast, and so ill-defined that it's the perfect whiteboard, right? It's a blank slate. We can do anything we want with it. We know it existed, and that's all I need to know. So perhaps could you mention a few of these stereotypes about the Middle Ages, about medieval times that feature in these medievalisms? I mean, what makes the medieval medieval? Or I think it's more like what makes medievalism, right? And I think it's some of the stereotypes that you're asking about. What's interesting, and I've written about this a little bit in some of my work, is that they can often be polar opposites, but they both feel true to people. So stereotypically speaking, the medieval period was totally male-dominated and misogynist and barbaric and violent and, you know, bloody and filthy and dirty and uneducated. And in the same breath, people will say the medieval period was pure and untainted and unsullied by industry. It's pre-industry. The air was clean and the grass was green and the birds sang and women frolicked through the fields making flower bouquets for their hair and whatever have you and Robin Hood and tra-la-la and minstrels, right? So it's like all of these things happen at the same time and you know you hold them up to each other and they don't work together, right? You can't have something be all peaceful and all violent at the same time. And yet both of those stereotypes are in all the stuff that we digest in popular culture. So like, for example, imagine watching Game of Thrones and turning right around and watching Disney's Snow White and thinking that they're coming from the same place. They don't match, they don't fit, and yet here we are. And some of those stereotypes are a little dicey, right? So some of them are like, oh, the medieval period is all Christian, all Catholic, but it's also all pagan, all heathen. So it depends on who you're asking, right? Which version is your version? So I guess this begs the question to combine this with the music question, I assume medieval music shows up in various forms of popular culture, right? Of course, now as we're having this conversation, I can remember no music from any medieval movie I've ever seen because I've just literally completely blanked. But I presume it shows up there and I assume it shows up in other places. So where else does it show up, you know, as quote unquote authentic music rather than say just a rousing score of, you know, some 18th century symphony right. stuck back, you know, in Gladiator or something like that. Because right. That's not medieval. There's 0% actual medieval music that shows up in, say, like the massive Lord of the Rings trilogy. And yet you could listen to some of that and say, oh, that's definitely medievalist. That's definitely medieval inspired. There's something there that makes pop culture imagination say, aha, medieval. And yet it's not. Right. So if we're asking about where the quote unquote real medieval stuff shows up, there's plenty of films, there's plenty of TV shows, there's plenty of video games, commercials, right? It's there. The question is, does the general public know that that's a quote-unquote real piece of music that actually written in, say, 1250 
versus something some guy wrote last week in his car. Right. So, for example, I have a lot of my students that'll say, oh, my goodness, you know, the theme song to the Halo video game is so medieval. It's great. It's a chant. It's plain chant. And I'm like, no, it's not. There's no words. And Marty McDonald, the composer, wrote it in his car like in 2004, whenever year it was. It's absolutely 0% medieval, but it sounds a certain way, right? But there are tons of places where, say, like the DS Irae chant shows up in some form. And that's like the one plain chant that everybody seems to know because of how often it gets used. It doesn't often get sung, but the melody's there. And that shows up a lot of places. So that's an example. And obviously, there's a lot of more specific examples I can give you if that's of interest. Let's focus on video games in particular, which I think we have discussed in an episode or two in this podcast. Why is medieval music so popular in video games specifically? Well, I mean, popular is in the eye of the beholder too, I guess. There's certainly plenty of it, right? But in comparison to all of the big heroic John Williams scores, there's more of those, right? Way more John Williams-y stuff than there is medieval music. But it shows up in video games for sure. And it does show up in film and TV too. And in all cases, it's showing up because people are looking to set a scene. They want to set a mood. They want to invoke a certain historical accuracy, maybe. That's not to say it's always used in an accurate way, right? But it depends on what the game is trying to do, right? So not all the games are trying to be historically accurate. It's just there for flavor. But other times the games are trying to be historically accurate, and therefore that music is particularly chosen because it fits, right? So there's ways in which we can talk about this that kind of cut across games, film, TV, any kind of modern media. And can I ask, I guess, you know, I think about this not through music, but through themes in, say, movies as my touchstone. And those obviously have changed significantly how they represent medieval stuff, for lack of a better term, on screen, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, the movie The Black Death, which is somewhat actually ironically a remake of The Seventh Seal and its themes and ideas, are obviously completely different movies when it comes to themes. So do you have a similar change over time that's happening in these ideas of medieval music as they appear in various genres? With games, one of the things we have to take into consideration which is less the case with film and TV and other things. It's just what the technology lets you do, right? So the trajectory of how music gets used in video games is so closely tied to technology and and what the actual chips will let you program, right? So if all you could have were a couple of bleeps and bloops back in the early days, you're not exactly going to sit down and throw down a whole symphony, right? That's not physically possible. It's not technologically possible, but you can program a little two-part piece or a little three-part piece. And that's where you get a lot of like Bach in early video games or like Baroque keyboard styles because it fits the chip really, really well. My colleague William Gibbons has written on that a lot. But medieval music, because it's not written for very many voices, could fit in well too. It's just that your average game player isn't going to recognize that tune. So why use it unless you really want to, right? When games progress to the point where, just like films, you can have a whole live recorded score, now we're talking, right? Now you can choose music a little bit more pointedly without regard to like storage capacity or whatnot. So it's a different way of addressing the situation than film or TV where they didn't have the same kinds of technological constraints. So with medieval music and games, 
I think you really have to get to the part where that composer, that sound designer is trying to set a mood. They're trying to set a very specific kind of scene where it does not matter if the audience does not know that tune. It's what's needed for this moment, right? So I think that's one way of describing how medieval music kind of shifts over time in games, I guess. And could you give us a few examples of video games where medieval music actually appears? Sure. Again, thinking kind of like later in game life where you did have the ability to have like big pre-recorded tracks and whatnot. The game that kind of got me into this whole field was Sid Meier's Civilization IV, which has this massive soundtrack that's virtually all pre-composed music from the European quote-unquote classical tradition, right? So there's plain chant, there's medieval, you know, pub tunes, there's big sweeping motets and mass movements from the church, you know, all the way through Beethoven and Rachmaninoff and then John Adams, right? The whole score is nothing but quote-unquote classical music. So there's tons of medieval music in that soundtrack that plays when you're in the medieval era, right? Or the ancient era or whatever it is. So you hear a ton of early music in that game. But other examples, one series that kind of tries to be somewhat historically accurate and kind of prides itself on that is like the Assassin's Creed series. So, you know, in the Assassin's Creed, in the Ezio trilogy, you know, there's one of the games in which the main character has to climb up the Duomo in Florence to assassinate a priest and the priest is chanting. And so you hear the whole chant as you're climbing the side of the Duomo, looking for the guy you have to kill and then you stab him, right? Things like that show up in games I'm not going to say a lot, but they're noticeable when they do. So those are two I can point out right off the top of my head. But I think this does connect to two other trends that I've been noticing as a non-expert, but as a person who is like observing this from like the sides. One, I think, is this trend that I think has increased over the past, let's say, decade or so, in which you get medieval, medieval-like or supposedly medieval music that appears in the game. Right. So I'm thinking about the Bard's Tale. I'm thinking about Dragon Age Origins, I think it was the first one, sure. uh, The Witcher 3, in which you actually have music, like a full song that is being sung within the game and kind of either forces you or like encourages you to listen to the entire song and observe a performance of characters in the game itself. So I'd like to hear any thoughts about that on one side. And on the other side, and this maybe pushes us even further into medievalism, if you would like to see it that way, is this entire trend of medieval-inspired music. And I think here, for me, Skyrim was the big change here, right? Skyrim did influence all these different performers on YouTube, more indie, less indie, more serious, less serious, but it was clearly very inspiring for many people. And since then, I mean, more and more people are creating music to fit their favorite video games, but that does seem to draw large audiences, at least on YouTube, which is where I'm getting all this. We could talk about the ways in which games have players, quote unquote, play the music, even if it's not real music dating to a particular period. That does happen somewhat frequently, I think. There are certainly examples of bards or characters that you can play that perform music, and a lot of times it's medievally inspired, or it's folk-like, and that often gets conflated, right? So thinking about, say, like the pub scenes in the remake of The Bard's Tale, the really snarky comedic one, Carrie Elwes, where they're singing, you know, 
old like 17th 18th century folk songs but it somehow fits this like medievalish atmosphere people don't really think too closely about that for example or like there's definitely examples of games where you have to play some renaissance music so there's a set of games that are amazing they're comedy games they're parodies and they're based on renaissance art as a procession to calvary and four last things and they're hysterical i highly recommend but in one of them you actually have to sit there and quote unquote perform an opera aria by clicking on the correct lyrics at the right time right and that we're talking about a piece of music from the late 1500s early 1600s so it's not exactly a medieval piece but it's an example of the way a player might have to play things that's a little bit different from seeing how people, performers and game players have taken inspiration from the kinds of music that they're hearing and they try to reimagine it in some sort of folk-like or medieval-like way. And one of the things that comes to mind is like the whole idea of bardcore, this new genre that's cropped up over the last number of years where musicians like Hildegard von Blingen have decided to take modern pop songs and redo them in some sort of overly affected courtly love sort of way. So all of a sudden you're listening to Lady Gaga on loot, right? And they gets all the hits on YouTube. And it's just a really creative way of exploring kind of just like this conflation of two apparently conflicting things, right? Or these things that don't fit together. How can we make them fit together? Right? It's fascinating to see how that crops up and how it gets disseminated. Every year my students are emailing me, Dr. Cook, have you seen this before? Oh my goodness, Hildegard von Blingen. This is great. So I don't know how much that kind of strikes at the heart of your question, because I know you were also asking about music that sounds medieval-ish. Yeah, so it's both that and, again, these performances within games, which seems to be something players want. So studios, I guess, invest like a significant amount of time, energy, funding into getting someone to create these pieces within the game, right? And, and perform the music within the game, right? So you would see like, I don't know, two, three, four minute performance. I think The Witcher 3 did that well, like there's a relatively recent game, Dragon Age Origins, I mentioned that as well. I mean, the sure. Bard's Tale is like maybe the best example because it's so much into the game itself. But, but I mean, other games that are, I guess, geared more towards the mainstream are doing that as well. I think so. I think some of it honestly depends on the game genre. You need a big, sweeping, massive, this game is going to take 60 or 100 or 200 hours, or it will never end. Those are the games that will attract the players that want to sit through a three or four minute song that you can't do anything but take in passively, right? Or that you are going to ask the player to actively invest in. Other games, other situations, players are saying, what is this? I'm not here for this. It's a different kind of game. I don't want that. One of the things that I'm thinking about is the way that music gets embedded in, say, like the big MMORPGs, where you might be sitting in an area with 42 other people online that you don't know jamming on your little digital loot, right, or whatever have you, We're using your keyboard to create the sounds. And people become really virtuosic with this sort of thing. You know, you're a keyboard expert at Lord of the Rings online recorder, and that's your thing. So it depends on the kinds of games that we're talking about. Those kinds of games are going to be able to put the resources into that and draw the player audience for that. Your little indie game, not necessarily, right? But there are certainly smaller games that require musical participation on behalf of the player, like Trombone Champ that just came out. There's nothing really medieval in there, right? But you have to play the trombone through a slew of 
pop hits and classical big war horses like Beethoven's Fifth and whatnot, and they'll love it. So you mentioned the impact that medievalism ideas kind of have this very strange, you know, inner paradox, right? That it's kind of two things acting against each other at the same time. Do you see this working out the same way when it comes to the use of music? And if so, where do you see this going? Or is it more just continuation of the same, you know, dirty, pure paradox, for lack of a better term? Yeah, that's certainly just one of the ways in which people take the medieval and turn it into whatever they need it to be, right? I don't know that music is going to have the same role in this. And I might be wrong, and I might want to rethink this answer, but I think what's in the public imagination already is medievalism. I guess what I'm trying to say is that there isn't a super huge solid footing on what actual medieval music is in the public imagination for that accurate, historic, real, quote-unquote, music to shift in any way. The creative musical reimaginings definitely shift considerably, but shifting might not be the right word. It's that the music tends to underpin those paradoxes like you were describing. So there's as much medievalist music that's pure and unsullied and you know, nostalgic and romantic and idealistic as there is guttural, violent, harsh, warlike, militant music. So I think the music tends to undergird the stereotype that's already present. And I think that is something we have to kind of be careful about because, as you were saying, you know, sometimes the music isn't what people pay the most attention to. It kind of slips under the radar from a critical thinking perspective. So people kind of digest it subconsciously. And those stereotypes maybe remain a little bit without thinking them through orally, if that makes sense. So maybe to start wrapping things up, how do you see the work on medievalism or medievalism in music moving in the future? I mean, the academic work, that is. I think that there's always going to be a new case study, a new game, a new film, a new TV show that one can sit down and analyze. So that kind of work is always going to be around. I think, and what I hope, is that the music folks like I am and my colleagues are, that we continue to reach out and have these conversations with people in other fields. Music tends to get a little put baby in a corner kind of thing, simply because for other fields, there's a little bit of a barrier to coming to us and learning our work. Whereas in order to do my work, I have to explore the history of art and language and literature and architecture. I have to know those fields. Those fields don't have to know me to do their work. What I hope is that in all of the umbrella of medievalism studies, that other folks pay a little bit more attention to what we're doing in music and that us music folks continue to make those connections outward that's one big thing. And the other big thing is that, like I was saying earlier, you know, there's a lot of movement toward understanding a global medieval. And I think from a musical perspective, that's really necessary because so much of what we do is dependent upon this sort of canon-centered, traditional Western music history survey approach to music, because that's often what is in the public imagination, right? And there's a lot of other connections we have to be making with other cultures and traditions around the world that were operating at the same time. Because the folks back in the day, 
knew a lot more people than we think they did sometimes. And I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done on how those musics may be connected with each other. So I think that's a really good way to end this episode. So I just wanted to thank you, Karen, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much, Karen. So, you know, Lee, we did an episode on video games and pandemics way back in the day. I want to say something like August of September 2020. And we finally returned to the topic. And how happy are you right now? No, I am happy. And I think the episode did bring together quite a few strands that interest me, at least, Merle, as the more game-inclined person between both of us. But I think maybe to move back a bit first, one of the things that struck me is that, I mean, Karen mentioned epidemic, pandemic, plague-related music, and I'm not sure I have heard all that much of that or read all that much of that in the discourse that we've been having or reading or, or even in my classes, right? I, I don't remember any of like the big epidemic textbooks or introductory works referring to music. You do get some dance, especially like the Black Death and Dance of Death and so on. But music, I do not remember. Yeah, I mean, that's why I asked the question, because I was thinking in particular, as you just said, about the Black Death. But there's a ton of books in various subjects that I've read, art, literature, history, obviously, and dance, as you just pointed out that make a key case, right? They'll be like art before the Black Death or art after the Black Death, right? And these are the actual titles. Or if you want to think about it from someone like Guy Geltner, right, is pushing back on this idea that public health is extremely different because of the Black Death, when in reality, it's ongoing processes of change that start centuries earlier and maybe get picked up or heightened, but they're always there. And so it is interesting that that idea doesn't seem to be, as you just pointed out, in the discourse about music. I wonder why that's the case. I mean, obviously, perhaps there was no real change. But one thing that we could have asked here and was how exactly does musicology work as a field, right? Because I imagine it's a much smaller field than most like history or art history. Oh, I'm sure it's much smaller, especially when you do medieval stuff, I would assume, right? I mean, there's a pretty booming medieval literature, medieval history, medieval art history field that's been around. It's not as large as American history, obviously. But, you know, musicology, if I recall, isn't as present at, say, Kalamazoo or the Medieval Academy as some other fields are, which isn't to say that it's not there. I think it's very much there, but I think it is much smaller. Right. Well, the other thing that came up in the episode that you seem to have an issue with Merle was medievalism and maybe its connection to quote unquote reception studies. So what would be your favorite medievalism? Well, let me say this. I have no problem actually with medievalism as a field. I think it's an absolutely central field in medieval studies writ large because, you know, when I ask my students what they think about the Middle Ages or when they hear the word medieval, they come up with medievalisms at the end of the day. So they come up with Game of Thrones or they come up with, you know, pick your other favorite movie, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? Whatever it might be. I think that one's less common for obvious reasons. But 
that's what they inherently come up with. And so I think that that's how most people encounter the field to begin with. So to dismiss that as simply, quote unquote, reception of the Middle Ages, I think is a mistake, right? I think Karen made a very good point, right? You have to meet your students where they are. And you can break down some of those problems, you can address those things, right? The idea that the Middle Ages are pure, I address head on, or the idea that it's dirty, I address head on, right? All those kind of ideas you can have discussions about, you can push back upon when necessary. But I think you're absolutely fundamental to how people come to the field. Kind of reflecting on this, I wonder to what extent did medievalism kind of push some, many of us maybe into this career choice? I mean, at least from my perspective, as a kid, I was interested in medievalism, medieval like themed games, movies. And I kind of put those aside for a bit, but there was this like substratum of, of interest that once I went to college, I was like, I don't know, maybe more inclined to kind of revive that and, and decide that this would be my career. It's definitely possible. I mean, as I said, you know, when I ask my students why they're in my medieval course, some percentage, I don't know what it is, 50%, 60%, 40%, I mean, pick a number, they're in the course for that exact same reason. So if one or two of them stay on and would become a medievalist, which would be a very high number, but even if one of them stayed on, right, that would be the reason why they did it. Now, Lee, you asked me for my favorite medievalism, so I will tell you, and then you have to respond in kind. So my favorite is the food at medieval times. And why do I like the food at medieval times? And my students all knew this when I asked them, what do you eat at medieval times? So do you know, Lee, what you eat at medieval times? I'm sure you're going to tell me right now. I am. And they all knew this, which was fascinating. You get a turkey leg, a piece of corn, and a baked potato. How many of those foods existed in the medieval world, Lee? <laughs> Okay, so how often do you go to medieval times? I've never been. I haven't been in years since I was maybe, I don't know, seven or eight, but I distinctly <laughs> remember those three foods. And the answer to my question is zero of them are medieval because they're all new world foods, of course. Yet that's what's served at a meal. Yeah, I think medieval times is this hyper-commercialized dinner, I guess, dinner that tries to like put you in an American style medieval world that has always been fascinating to me, even though I've never been. So I've just like read about it and, and like watched a few videos. But as for my favorite medievalism, I would probably go with probably Robin Hood. So Robin Hood as like a character was like pretty big for me for whatever reason when I grew up. And specifically the Kevin Costner movie from, I think, 1990 or 91. I'm sure you watched that, right? Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Prince of Thieves. What? Which was actually, I guess back then it was not a horrible movie. Watching it, I think in grad school was the last time I watched it. It was a horrible movie. <laughs> I mean, it's more of a joke movie. What you should actually watch is Robin Hood, Men in Tights by the great Mel Brooks. Well, of course I watched that too, Merle. I mean, it's like... <laughs> They go together. Or you can watch the Robin Hood with Russell Crowe, where he's like key person in Magna Carta and thus starting all of <laughs> democracy. Yeah, that, that one was bad. I mean, the one I remember most fondly was the Kevin Costner one, the Prince of Thieves. Yeah, with the extended version that 
brings in like paganism and yeah, it gets pretty weird. But they were inclusive in the early 90s too. Fair enough, fair enough. So if I can transition now, Lee, you're clearly in a new place and a new academic year, you said, just started today. So do you have any new realizations about our profession you want to share with our listeners? I mean, it's been one day, not even one day, probably like what about half a day since I've started here. And what I can say so far is not particularly profound, Merle, which is to say that different places do things differently, which is one of your sentences, I think, that you had like in one of the previous episodes. But yeah, I mean, the traditions in my home institution are very different from the traditions here. So there was like a big faculty meeting today, for example, and they brought in all the guests of the faculty here, which was an entire room full of people. That would not be the kind of thing we would do back in my home university. The gathering would be at the level above my department, so the school, so to speak. And it would also not happen on the first day of classes. I guess here, the reason is that people actually live nearby, whereas back there, they do not always do that. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, you've always said your department at your university is less central than whatever the thing above the school or whatever. And as you know, at Princeton, it's the department that effectively runs everything. But that is interesting. I didn't know they brought in all the visitors. I mean, how many visitors were there in total? Well, I guess somewhere around 15 people, somewhere in that range, I think. Okay. So not a small number. Anyone else from Israel? Nope. There's like a few faculty members from Israel, but none of the visitors are. Well, fair enough. Congrats. And I assume now you'll be wearing orange and black every day. Not yet, not yet, but give me a few weeks to transition into the mood over here. Right, so I think that on this note, we're going to wrap up this episode. I will update with some hopefully more profound observations. The next episode we record in maybe a couple of weeks or three weeks. But until then, we would like to thank our sponsors, both at Oklahoma State University and also at the Hebrew University for funding the Infectious Historians and also our great team, our sound editor, Amitai Barlavi and Verid Rekanati, our webmaster. Until next time, stay safe during this current surge, stay cool during global warming, and feel free to send Lee some nice orange and black gear now that he's back at Princeton. <laughs>